Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development with the people that make it happen. Today's episode is brought to you by TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring. Know when errors hit your website with the context to find and fix bugs fast with TrackJS. Start your free trial today at trackjs.com. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Script and Style, the web show where we talk about web development and the people that make it happen. I'm Todd Gardner from TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring, and my co-host, David Walsh, creator of the popular blog, davidwalsh.name. How's it going today, David? I am overwhelmed, Todd. Overwhelmed? Overwhelmed. Why are you overwhelmed, man? <clears throat> well, life is going fast. You know, my, my oldest child is a kindergartner now, so that's pretty exciting. Congratulations. Um, but I'm overwhelmed playing catch-up on Firefox, uh, Firefox Developer. I thought that was a video game for a second. You're playing no, a new game called Catch Up. I should. I should. <laughs> um, I got stuck on like fixing the same issue for like a week. It was like the most annoying thing in the world. But I finally have it done. It was frustrating. I come out of it bloody, bruised, <laughs> humiliated. But it's hopefully fine. you learn. Hopefully you learn something from it, though. I did. Um, briefly, I'll say that, so the DevTools debugger to remember the tabs that you've opened for different source files, um, in preferences, it stores an array of URLs. But did you know that a minified source and the original source, the source map, can have the exact same URL? How could they have the same URL? Wouldn't they be different files? Isn't it crazy? How, I don't understand how that's even possible. It is possible. Trust it's like, me. It's, it's like a header. It. Like if you request the file with a certain header, it returns the unminified version. That could be it. I don't understand every in and out of it, but it's wild. So that being the case, we can't simply store tabs as uh, an array of URLs anymore because it might be the source mapped version or it might be the minified version. That's awful. Anyways, it like the eventual solution, like what it needed to be, that was easy, but technically making it happen and then writing the right tests and fixing the old ones. There's just a lot of like a lot of background work that goes into it. And it was just, I felt like I was banging my head for a while, but again, it's merged I can sleep at night again, and I can enjoy today's show with today's guest. Wonderful. So our guest today is Mr. Charlie Vazek, who's from my hometown of Stillwater, Minnesota. Well, not from, but lives there now. Uh, he's the senior architect for Akabai Performance Engineering and the former co-founder of Sosta, which got a lot of notoriety for their work on, on web performance. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me today, guys. We appreciate it. We, thanks for so much for coming. Um, how we typically like to uh, start off the show is to learn a little bit more about you and your origin story. How did you get into this this crazy software development world? How did you how did you find your way into this this world that we're in? Sure, it's a fun question. It's something I haven't really thought about uh, for a long time. But I think it was seventh or eighth grade, and for one of my math classes, I got the um, the big fat dark gray TI eighty two. 
<laughs> and uh, you know, so pre- it predated the eighty-five, which actually could do some more, some more things. But it was a little bit better than the eighty-one. But in the end, you could program on it. And I think, if I remember correctly, um, you could only the switching mechanisms were you could you could enter in up to twenty-six go-to statements because you could set you know A, B, C, and you could have go-tos like that. And I just became intrigued by that. And um, you know, at bed, I used I used to go to bed reading the TI eighty two manual just to figure out what what else this could do. And then finally, somebody brought a game into school, and I was like, "This is unbelievable! I got to get my hands on the game. I I don't know how to get this game, so I'm going to make one." So uh, I was inspired at the time to create Tetris, and I wrote a really janky version of Tetris. I think everybody's seen like the good version of Tetris on TI eighty twos. I wrote a a uh, single pixel version of it. So like a four, like a long bar was actually just one by four. So it was four pixels to make that bar. So you kind of had a squint, but it worked. Um, you know, I distributed it amongst my school and people kind of dug it. And then the next thing I made was, um, you know, what kid doesn't want to p- pass notes in class? Well, with the TI-82, you had that little wire that allowed you to tether two devices. And I wrote like a a, a chat app that you know, would wait for the other person to talk and you could talk over that like two and a half foot black wire. And I was just totally intrigued by the possibilities. Um, went to school, uh, was a computer science major. Um, fast forward 10 years, which will hopefully segue us into today's conversation. Uh, for Sosta, the last couple of years of Sosta, I was working on the Boomerang team. Boomerang is, Boomerang is the JavaScript agent that runs in the browser that collects all the performance data that supplies Impulse, our real user measurement product that Sosta had. And so often you'd get called into situations where, so Boomerang would be installed on a web page like uh, WashingtonPost.com. And they would come and say, hey, you see this one part of the screen? It's supposed to look like this. And it looks like this only one in 10 times. And the other times something's happening. And we think Boomerang's to blame. <laughs> and you're like, well, what am I supposed to do now? So you have to dive into somebody else's code base and figure out how it was supposed to work and then figure out how you were breaking it. And in the end, it comes down to these subtle interactions between JavaScripts. And it's usually between two different third parties or a third party of the host page. And it usually has to do, the problem almost invariably ends up being monkey patching or polyfills. Um, and those are the two points that, you know, third parties or a third party and a first party can interact where they don't really expect to. And I fell in love with just debugging these issues and trying to come up with some best practices for how, um, third parties can be better with, um, playing along nicely together. And, uh, that's, that's, um, that's, uh, some of the stuff I've been working on lately. So a little bit long, but that's what I got. I love the story about the TI-82 calculator. I, I also had that kind of calculator. My... My eldest daughter recently needed um, the same kind of calculator, and they're exactly the same as they were. Like it's it's still the TI eighty five, I think, is what they're up to now. But it's the exact like they haven't evolved since yeah. since I was in school, and they play the same games, like literally the same versions of Tetris and yep. Snake was always a really popular one. Uh, are 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 on their calculators now? Like it's That's the awesome. same. It's the same thing. That's really cool. So you said um, you talked about monkey patching. Yeah. So before we we dive in, you should explain what is monkey patching. Sure. 
Sure. Uh, th- yeah, there's a lot of words for monkey patching. Um, um, shim, swizzle, any number of names, but it's basically... Swizzle? You're making you know, that one up. I've never I've, heard that in my life. I've, I've got a slide in one of my talks where I show about 25, adge- 25 to 35 adjectives for the word. My favorite's and- always been duck punching for JavaScript. <laughs> I need to add that. I know Because it's a duck type language, and so you can punch onto it. That's right. Duck punching. Yeah. So, so monkey patching <laughs> is basically, um, you can... You can override just about all of the host level APIs. So the native APIs that live in the browser, think about like set timeout or fetch or XHR. You can, one, you can delete them, which is crazy. You can just say window.delete or delete window.fetch. But you can also say window.fetch equals new function. So when anybody else in that browsing context or frame calls fetch, they're going to get your patched version. And there's a lot of reasons to do this. You know, Boomerang um, wants to measure timings of things. So we want to measure how long an XHR is out for. So there's, there's, you can use resource timing data, and that helps a little bit. But if you want to get down a little bit closer, you can instrument the dot .send method and then dot .add event listener, and you can measure timestamps. So there's a lot of good reasons to do it. Uh, there's a lot of bad reasons to do it, too. Um, which we might not talk about later, but that's what monkey patching is, basically changing the native override. One, uh, another like huge uh, use of um, monkey patching that I used back in the day was like you never want to change, or I shouldn't say that. If you're using a third-party library, for example, like I, Dojo is my example, um, there are cases where you want to monkey patch a given function um, without changing the original source sort of thing. Um, you can't go into, you know, a dojo build and change something, but on an outside JavaScript file, you can monkey patch, you know, the original function. And, um, that's, you know, was sort of a best practice for a while with third party, um, JavaScript libraries that I had worked with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely good reasons to do it. And, and you know, good monkey patching will, you know, ultimately delegate to the, the underlying native implementation. But we've found is that a lot of people don't get it right. And a lot of people do it such that you're not going to get the native delegated to. And, you know, in a perfect world, you should be able to patch, fetch, I should be able to patch, fetch, and on and on and on. As long as we let it daisy chain correctly, um, things will just work. So you you do monkey patching as part of your work on Boomerang JS, right? Yes. So Boomerang JS is a you described it as in the category of, of uh, third party JavaScript. Yep. What what is to the average JavaScript developer working in you know MooTools or React or jQuery or whatever? What what do we mean when we say third party JavaScript? Sure. Uh, third-party JavaScript is, is or third-party, just like third-party script, it's in third-party code is any code that you didn't write and you didn't, you don't, you didn't, you're not, res- you're, you're responsible for it because it's your page, but you didn't write it. So you're going to pull in something else, either via NPM or di- direct script link or something like that. So React.js is third-party script? Absolutely. Okay. React.js is a third-party script. Um, you know, uh, intercom, you know, or if you want to set up a payment system on your web page or, or comments or, or AB testing or analytics tools like Boomerang, all of those are not the core business logic. So I consider them third party. 
So any any of the scripts that you include in your ultimate web application that's not yours. Um, so how do you protect? Like how do you, like that can break your site in a lot of ways. Yes, yep. definitely, definitely. So have you broken some sites? Yes, <laughs> haven't we all? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, no. There's, there's, uh, there's a great number of stories of things that we have broken. Um, so I'm working on a, a blog post series um, where, I mean, if people are going to get bored of reading it, they, they'll, they will be bored of it by the end. But I want to talk about <laughs> monkey patching from simple to hard. Okay, so a simple case would be monkey patching set timeout. That's hard to mess up. Um, the opposite end of the spectrum is ad event listener. And I think patching add event listener where it comes to also making sure remove event listener works correctly um, is people don't always get that right. Um, Boomerang, for example, broke remove event listener because um, our internal bookkeeping system was not, was not correct. So yeah, there was a time there where Boomerang, we would intercept all calls to um, event target dot add event listener and we were not making them removable. Um, Track.js did a similar thing when we interacted with Zone.js. Uh, there was a particular path where we had a similar, very similar problem. Yes, yeah, Zone.js um, is special to my heart because although I've never, um, I, I have had to dig into the special is a good word. I would vote kill it with fire, but yeah, special. <laughs> You know, I'll I'll add a quick aside. I met uh, the day I met Ty. We went out to lunch, and I was talking about something monkey patching, blah blah blah. And then I, I was fresh off the investigation of an issue where we coexisted with Zone JS, and I started to say Zone JS, and I think I rolled my eyes. And Todd, I think, did this had the same, <laughs> and it just it melted my heart like like no other that we had been with through the war stories. Um, can I, can I get into that situation? Yeah, go, go for it, man. Go for it. Okay, cool. Okay. So, um, monkey patching event, uh, at event listener is not that difficult when it comes to like click handlers and stuff like that. It gets really interesting when you look at it in terms of XHR. So if you look at the XHR prototype chain, if you wanted to, so when you call on an XHR instance, so like lowercase XHR dot at event listener, it's going to look at the instance method, then it's going to look up the xhr.prototype, then for given browsers, it'll be xhr event target, and then there's also uh, event target at the top of the prototype chain. And you can override any, they, none of them are different than the top, but they're all points at which you could intervene. They're all points at which you can short circuit. And what we found, so we, we hijack, hijack, hijack's another word for it. We hijack event target prototype that add event listener from Boomerang. So what we were finding, and I don't remember the site, but it had to do with Zone JS, where they were instrumenting at a lower level than us, and it had to do with the order that we were loaded in the page. So this is the scenario: they get in the page first, and they instrument at the XHR prototype add event listener level. And the way that you patch is you 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 set a reference you, you set the reference to the original native and you're going to delegate up to what you saw to be the source of truth at the moment that you intervened so when zone js sets xhr.prototype.addEventListener, at that moment their source of truth is the top the native event target.addEventListener. 
we come in later and try to vent wrap event target that at, at event listener, but zone two doesn't know about us. So they're going to trap the call first and then they're going to jump over us after they delegate. Yep. So, you know, that's why a particular, you know, like weather widget wasn't showing up in the corner because of load order and um, third parties colliding where it comes to monkey patching. And the lesson learned was that once JS did it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and it, what was weird too was it was racy because they were instrumenting at different levels almost indiscriminately. But the lesson is once a method has been monkey patched at a level, you can no longer patch above it because you're not going to get delegated to. Yeah. So I, I want to write some best practices because if Track.js and Boomerang are in the same page and we both want to get our, our grubby little fingers into the XHR response. My fingers are not grubby, sir. <laughs> speaking for myself. Uh, I think there's only one way for you and I to both do that correctly. And um, I'm, I'm going to be talking about it in a blog post soon. Awesome. Awesome. So there's a lot of things that can go wrong when you invite, when like the developer invites third parties to put their grubby little fingers all over it. Why, why would we do this? Like why, why would developers use third party scripts? Well, I don't, I don't think I'm going to need to make it a case for something as big as react, you know, or any kind of framework like that, but there's, um, you know, even, um, we founded Sosta in 2006. It was about three months before the release, the first release of jQuery. But even back then, we were using Dojo and we were using um, YUI for tree controls. I don't want to write another tree control. I mean, there's there's a there's a reason to pull these building block blocks in. Obviously, analytics that's near and dear to my heart. Um, but there's you know A/B testing frameworks, font libraries. Um, we shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel every time we want to just throw up a page. I would agree with that. Um, so what are some things that people should consider when they're looking to use third-party libraries? Um, I guess optimizing for, for delivery. Sure. Sure. Um, well, so it's 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 weird. So you you pull you look at a page like a, a third party like, um, my mind just went blank. Intercom, and if you want to pull in any of these libraries, they make it so simple to pull themselves in. So they say, just add this one tag. Just add or Google Analytics. Just add add this one tag. It's super simple. But to me, that's it's dangerous to do only that for two different reasons. One, it's their single point of failure vectors. And by single point of failure, I mean, if you just have script source equals blah, and even if you're using the new async and defer, if those are slow to load or take 60 seconds to time out, that's going to push out your on, on load event. And in the web per community, we always say, well, the on load event doesn't matter, which is true. But um, it still matters to our user because of Chrome built into the browser, like the spinner is still going to be going. The, the user is trained to know that the user isn't loaded until that kind of stuff, like the reload button, and once that stops spinning. So the load event still matters. So the single point of failure issue, um, so that would mean that I would seek out third parties that um, 
allow themselves to be enabled in different ways that are non-blocking. We can talk about that later too if you want. And then the other part of just including script source equals blah is that um, it, it gives all of the upgrade control to the third party. To the third party. And, um, you know, unless a version number is built into the URL. But that's kind of scary because you might have everything just working all at once and then the version upgrades from out from under you. Boomerang, we do control the version on the back end, but we make all upgrades and rollbacks um, opt-in. So we'll never upgrade something out from under you. So um, I'd be worried about single point of failure and I'm worried about the, um, the release schedule. Interesting. Um, this is sort of an oddball question that I wanted to ask you. Um, are there any sort of performance rules of old that don't necessarily apply anymore? I feel like I'm a dinosaur and, and a lot of my uh, web performance um, ideas aren't, I'm not purging the old stuff and I'm wondering if there's any old stuff that I do need, do need to purge when it comes to web performance. Yeah. Web performance or any technology is kind of like a long GitHub thread thread where at the top you understand it, but then to know the complete picture, you have to read all the deltas as you go down. Whereas it would really be nice if there was just a source of truth up at the top. Uh, two things come to mind. Obviously, like, you know, back in the day, you wanted to take advantage of the then six parallel connections of the browser. So you'd want to, um, with H2 push and multiplexing, that kind of stuff changes. But the biggest one that I still see is that people want to put their less important scripts just at the bottom, right before closed body. And I think that, that, um, that works against some of the preload scanning work that browsers have done to be able to discover those scripts as early as possible to start making those requests. So if I was wanting, if I wanted to include GA or anything like that, I'd put it as high as possible, but then also include some resource hints in the header. So you can do a DNS prefetch or even a preload to get that, to get that connection and get the TCP and the DNS um, resolved as quickly as possible. So it's not a case where, so let's say, for example, Google Analytics is slow mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason. Yep. Um, if you do a prefetch, doesn't that initially slow your web page down quite a bit? Or is that not true? A prefetch? Uh, a, a, pre, a, pre, a preload? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and that's part of the trouble where it comes to pushing resources because you don't yet know what's already in cache. And there's some specification work that's, that's, um, that's underway to take it to, to solve that problem. Yes. But if you, if you push or if you prefetch something that's already in the user's cache, that's a waste of cycles. Yeah. But I don't, I don't, what, what did you mean by slowing? Did you mean slowing down in another way? I meant if like, if, um, if, you know, Google was google.com was hanging or something. Yeah. Um, if that would s- slow things down, because in theory, if you put your script tag at the bottom, most of your page is then already loaded. Right. Well, async and defer help quite a bit. So that'll allow the parser to keep going. So really there's no reason for that stuff to be at the bottom. Okay. But that, you know, if it's slow, if it's 10 seconds slow, that's still going to push on load out. Boomerang loads itself in an, in an anonymous iframe. And it plays a couple 10-year-old tricks to be able to be completely non-blocking. 
So we we generate an iframe and then we use like the dreaded document dot write to to write ourselves into that thing. But what we've proven is we're not a single point of failure. And nobody else does this. Nobody else um, includes themselves in a non-blocking way. There are some sites that will not request analytics or other third parties until after DOM content loaded or on load and they control it themselves. But for people that you want to just like drop in a snippet and not have to worry about single points of failure, um, as far as we know, there's only one way to do it, and that's how Boomerang does it. Interesting. So you measure performance with Boomerang, right? Yep. What are, what are some of the biggest impacts of web performance or biggest mistakes that you see people make uh, across your customer base? <laughs> Um, I, I think I, you know, if I could, if I could sum it up to one thing, it would be the topic of this, this podcast. It's, um, it's third parties because people spend so much time getting their page just right. And, um, you and then know, they smear ad networks all over it. <laughs> yeah. And part of the problem is, and I was guilty of this too, when I was dropping in tags, we didn't run intercom and, um, whatever the other payment system we had, we didn't have those running on our machines. And I, not even sure if we had them running in staging. It was like, oh yeah, just turn that on in production. And that's that's insane because like these subtle interactions between third parties, like they're so hard to diagnose and find and then fix that like you have to give yourself a little bit of a head start by putting it in to the build pipeline earlier and earlier. But so often I'll see where they just turn on all this stuff for production and by then it's already too late. So in terms of, and, and that, and that goes back to tag managers, tag managers, they're a third party too. And, um, you know, Google has done some amazing, amazing work in terms of web performance in general, they're leaders in the community, but they're also responsible for ad networks that don't always play nicely and for GTM, which, um, <laughs> You know, Google, somebody on Twitter said, Google Tag Manager is a great way for people you've never met to get code into your site that you haven't reviewed or something like that. Yeah. And that's, that's crazy. Uh, yeah. In case you don't have enough mark, like unreviewed marketing scripts that you want dropped onto your page with no IT review, use Google yeah. Tag Manager. They <laughs> made it too easy to have just a list of scripts and then that stuff rots. So like, why did we add that script in March of 2016? don't know we should probably leave it and this is so one thing one example of where this could happen i see it all the time unfortunately is somehow um evildoers will put will um they'll have an advert probably through a tag manager like you're talking about but it somehow finds a way to do a window location change yeah i've seen this all the time and that's why I'm scared to death of these tag managers. But it was also back when I was consulting way back in the day, it was hard to convince your customer that this was a bad idea because this is exactly what can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's scary. How, how are they getting a window location change in there? <laughs> like shouldn't these ad ad companies be looking for something like that? I don't know. Yeah. So it's wild. Definitely, definitely they should be. But, um, you know, I mean, there's, um, 
you saw you saw the coin hive thing where browse allowed got um the, uh, crypto miner got snuck into that code and it affected a bunch of um uh, european government web pages you can get anything you can get so many things in um i'm look i was looking at another analytics provider the other day and um we um i don't want to say we have beef but we <laughs> um boomerang and um new relic browser happen to cohabitate in the same page. And we found that they were clearing the resource timing buffer. Okay, so they would, so um, out of the box, most modern browsers, you get 150 resource timing entries in the page. And you can increase that limit and everything like that. But we found that New Relic Browser was um, grabbing them all and then wiping the buffer clear. And it was leaving Boomerang, you know, uh, left holding the bag. So we, we reached out to them and we're, we're trying to figure out a way to do this um, correctly, which hopefully will be my next blog post once I, once I get the right people on the phone. And so just the other day, I was firing up their code just to say like, oh, I wonder if they've fixed this from their end. And I couldn't find the word clear resource timings. I couldn't find it. I was like, I'm just going to look for that word. That's going to take me right through this minified code. Well, I couldn't find it. And it turns out that they were using, they had, um, they omitted the um, C, the leading C, which is why I wasn't finding it. And they weren't doing that to be nefarious. They were doing it because like the older uh, brow, uh, vendor, vendor prefix version, it was like WebKit clear resource timing data. And so they weren't doing it to be nefarious, but like you can mask all that stuff. You can, um, you know, static code analyzers only go so far if you're trying to defeat a nefarious actor. If I wanted to, to hide a window location change in JavaScript, I, I bet I could. Like, I mean, you you break out the word into different variables. You use right. some math to generate the appropriate character code, and then you assemble it all when you reference it as like a array notation property. Like, nobody's ever going to be able to reverse engineer that out of minified code. Nope, nope, one hundred percent. Which is why I, I, I was trying to in my talk at, at, at Fluent with Nick Jansma. Um, my proposed best practice was like a hand wavy. You have to instrument all the code. If you want to know if there's a third party that's sending out fetches or reading cookies or whatever else, you have to know what the code level because you know static code analyzing or eyeballing the code on GitHub. Um, I mean, you can send one version of the code to GitHub and another another version of the code to NPM. Um, the only way to do it is code level, but that falls apart with window.location. I don't think you can instrument window.location. I don't think. Which you don't think you, you can do a, like an object defined property, a get or a set on, on that property? I think that fails. I think it doesn't allow you to reset it, but I could, I've, cause I've been, I, I've, cause I've been on a page before where, I, where I'm saying who was changing the location and I wasn't able to trap it that way. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So you, you're doing this. So you uh, make a third party and you're, you're, you're capturing this sort of stuff. What sort of things does, does Akamai do with that information? Like, what, what do you do with that performance information? Yeah, it's, it's a great it's a it's a great question. So we've got a we got a product called Impulse, which which is a real user measurement, and we've got all of the um, all of the dashboard visualizations that you would ever want. So you can identify percentiles of time to first bytes, um, first paint, or time to interactive. 
So different things that you can set up on your on your properties, you can set up alerts on those kind of things. What's starting to get interesting is since Akamai acquired Sosta, we're starting to integrate with um, uh, some of our other web performance products, some of Akamai's other web performance products. And right now I'm working with um, a group um, that have a script management um, product with Akamai where they install a service worker into your page and then using the RUM data, they'll use the RUM data to identify all of the first, but also third-party scripts that are in your page. Because I'll just add parenthetically, part of this problem is that we we don't know all of the scripts that are on the page. You know, www.sosa.com uh, or akabai.com, like I don't know if there's any one person that knows about all of the third parties that are on the page. So using the RUM data, that's what Script Manager will do. That's not synthetic, it's production. What request actually came out of the browser? And then using that data, the service worker is able to offer the user um, some um, actions to take. So if they find out that Facebook is having a bad day and they need to block the code that serves the like button, the like widget, they can they can block that from our UI. They can defer any number of scripts, but it's also a single point of failure blocker. So it's a pretty handy little third-party tool, and it's it's deriving all of its value from the RUM data that Boomerang supplies it with. So are you able to do that because you're acting as like a CDN for these sites so that you can, at request time, like strip off requests? That's how we get our... Um, that's how we get Boomerang in, that we edge inject it, and that's how we can get our script, um, our service worker in as well. Yeah. But any service worker installed on the page has... has um, access to those um, those top-level requests. Oh, yeah. I suppose as a service worker, yeah. for the browsers that support service worker, you can just intercept that request and, like, cancel it or whatever. Do whatever you want. Set a spoff timeout of, of five seconds. If it doesn't come back after five seconds... That's yeah. not a bad idea to just do all the time. <laughs> not, that's a good point. That's a good point. So um, we started off talking a little bit about... Um, monkey patching and compatibility and some of the, the suffering that you and I have shared with regard to zone JS. Yep. Um, are there any things that you can do to protect yourself from, from third parties that might like be screwing around on your page? Uh, yeah. For, for, compatib- for compatibility reasons, you mean for, for yeah. page breakage? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like if, uh, if my marketing department is just absolutely insisting that we have to have intercom on there, but if I don't trust intercom, for example, how do I protect myself from intercom messing with my, you know, behavior on my page? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good question. So, um, so I think there's two native browser APIs that are now available to your disposable disposal that I definitely recommend. There's CSP and SRI. So content security policy, that's going to be that's you're going to be able to whitelist basically the domains that you tr- trust. So you can go ahead and whitelist um, the intercom uh, domain. Uh, SRI allows you to validate that you're getting what you expect from the server. And SRI is a technology that would have fixed that would have that would have caught this um, browse allowed issue. With SRI, you bake a SHA into the markup of the page. So it makes upgrades really annoying. But you bake the SHA into the markup, and the browser is smart enough to say, if I'm getting some uh, 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 a resource back, script or style or anything else that doesn't match this expected SHA, just don't execute it. 
So that doesn't work if um, if it's a non-versioned URL, right? Like if I'm just referencing like the most recent version of Intercom's JavaScript file, they can cha- change the contents of that file at any time. And anytime they do, the SHA would change, which would cause just like, like it a just constant, work. yeah, which would cause work. a constant thrashing thing. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that would be like a pretty crappy way to do upgrades. Just to say, like, okay, I'm not going to work until I've like retroactively blessed it. But it's an argument for self-hosting. I read an article just uh, yesterday or the day before on Medium where somebody started self-hosting their AB framework and they sped up first interactive by a second. And by self-hosting, I mean you know right-click file, save as, save off the GA code or wherever else hosted on your domain. So you already have that connection warm, but then you control the life cycle and you can run your static analyzers on it. You can do anything else and it, it can't change because it's yours. Yeah. Yeah. You, you will never have that issue of your site breaking unexpectedly at yeah. middle of the middle of Friday afternoon yeah. when you didn't change your code, but your third party did. Yep. Another way to practice. Uh, so I consider CSP and SRI just like baselines. Those, those are, you have to do those. But there's also tools like SNYK, um, SNYK. SNYK um, they're a um, package uh, vulnerability checker. Oh, oh, right. The company, yes. Yep. Yeah, so you bake, bake that into your CI. Um, NPM audit is now pretty great. So if you talk about those four, that's, about the le- that's really about the least you can do. Other than that, as I was kind of alluding to before, like you don't know if somebody's going to open up an event source or something like that on you unless you're actually instrumenting event source. So that's that's your ultimate truth right there is being in the code. So how how do you do that? Like if you were if you were managing a site and you had to deal with third parties, how would you instrument the code in such a way that you trusted the third parties? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. Uh, for, first, let me give a plug real quick. So Nick Nick Jansma and I g- gave a talk in Fluent, and he started this page called Third Party IO. Third is a, the number three, and it runs a lot of audits on the third parties. So what you can do is you can just you can type in the full URL to TrackJS, and it's going to evaluate it on various various things like cache headers, what you know, uh, gzipping, um, but also does it you know how many native overrides does it. Um, how many native overrides does it do? Uh, uh, various things like that. But if I were if I were owning a site where I was super concerned about, uh, if I was super paranoid, and I had a perception that I very much needed to test, I would instrument things like um, escape and unescape, and long set timeouts, and document cookie reads, and reads to window.clipboard data, and reads to the user agent, and I would I would throttle the data coming out of this collection because it would be a lot of data but it's stuff that I, w- I would want to look at and if all of this like i wouldn't stop it but if and xhr.send instrumentations i would want i would want to identify those too and i beacon that back up and i would i would look for new players coming in and maybe touching an api that i didn't that i was a little bit worried about this third-party io is really cool yeah nick did a fantastic job is this dynamic, or did you like pre-plug in the the sites that work? Like, how does it yeah. how does it run these calculations? Yeah, there's probably I don't know if there's maybe fifteen or twenty pre-built reports that are already in there. You can add your own, and um, there's some sort of migration poly- uh, step that Nick does to bring that up to the forefront. But um, yeah, submit one, 
real time and you'll get, you'll get your answers back in a, in a couple seconds, I think. Wow. That, that's really cool. I dropped a link in chat. You should totally uh, plug some of your third-party libraries that you're trying out into this. It gives you a fantastic set of information about like yeah. whether it's you know creating cookies, it's reading global variables. I mean, it's pretty nice. Yeah, it's really, really handy. I'm working to bake in some of my work into Nick's library, which is to say, so I have a, I, today I have a bookmarklet. And when... Um, when I'm fighting one of these boomerang fires, the first thing I do when I go to a web page is to pull that bookmarklet down and it's going to identify all of the native host overrides just so I know what I, where I'm starting with. So I'm working on a PR to bake that into Nix. And it and again, like there's nothing wrong with monkey patching, but I just want to know about it because that's where my eyeballs need to go if there's a problem. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So there's got to be some privacy angle to this as well right like could a, a third party could steal like if i if i was malicious hypothetically uh with my third party i could pull tons of data off of sessions right i could grab usernames passwords credit card numbers anything sent over requests i could i could do lots of terrible stuff as a third party yeah, and that's part of the problem with uh, CSP is that it's it's rather binary. It's I trust you or I don't trust you, and there's there's other APIs in the browsers like sandbox iframes where you can you can get a little bit more fine grained control about what you allow them to do. But um, you know, Sosta, Sosta was acquired by Akamai before www.sosta.com went down. There was a script on there that instrumented xhr.prototype.send. And it would scan all the data that was passed to the dot send method. And it was regexing all of the values and it was looking for email addresses. And then if it found anything, it was beaconing those back to those servers, which is, which is just crazy. Like that's, that's not why we dropped that third party into that, into that page in the first place. Um, you know, I spoke before about like the subtle interactions between pages that, um, that end up causing problems. It can also be the subtle interactions between third parties that cause, um, that can cause privacy leakage. An example I can think of is, um, uh, the way react and, um, there was a session replay analytics tool, maybe Clicktail, where when they coexisted on the page, React, the way React did some of its, um, they were basically stashing a little bit of data in an input. And um, this Meteor replay session analytics tracker guy was smart enough to not beacon back any values of like password inputs or hidden inputs because they knew that could be potentially um, sensitive. But the way React was doing it back um, earlier in the winter was that they were taking some of that sensitive data and just putting them on what we used to call expandos on the node. So then this analytics tool had no reason to suspect that anything was um, potentially sensitive and they were beaking those, those things back. And those, that's an interaction between two third parties that you would never think and then it, it caused this leakage. I feel like in our industry, we are far too trusting. I mean, the stuff that you've been talking about has been in the browser, but again... You know, we add um, package.json dependencies like it's nothing, and, and we just sort of trust that they're not doing anything shady in the background. Um, so th this is an overall problem. I'm happy to report, Todd, that Track.js 
is very green on thirdparty.io. So yeah, I, you, I, that was the first thing I checked. <laughs> <laughs> you were gonna you were gonna complain if your grade was bad. <laughs> I don't think this thing works. No, it's it's very cool. Like the the amount of information. I'm gonna echo what Todd said. The amount of information you can get from thirty thirdparty.io um, about a third party script is just amazing. I'm really impressed by it. Yeah, everybody yeah, should go did. check that out. Nick did a fantastic job. Yeah, no, it's crazy. And then the 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 issue came up uh, less than a month ago, where uh, it was an ESLint scope package. Somebody slipped some nefarious code into that, which is used by a lot. I mean, that that's if you were trying to take over the web, get yourself into a tiny package that is uh, relied upon by big important packages, and now now you're going places. So. Kind of one thing to kind of wrap wrap this up. If I'm if I'm an average developer, uh, what should be the things that I, I do aside, you know, checking my third parties with this this website? What what things should I look for before I decide to okay a third party? Yeah, that's like, a good like we can't all be you and like know everything about all the like the deep levels of monkey patching and how all the the native stuff works. What tips can we give? Uh, the average web developer to to evaluate whether a third party is going to be good. Yeah, I, I'd say don't be scared of third parties. They're probably all fine. But my one piece of advice would be to pull them in as early as possible. So if it's just like an intercom widget, pull that in before production. Get it tested. Make sure that your browser support aligns. So your pages browser support and the third parties support. Make sure that aligns. Pull it in early. Um, you know, HTTPS only. Um, ideally, they're on. They're fronted by a CDN. Consider self-hosting. Those are some of the things that I would look at. That's great. That's great. So I think uh, we're kind of hitting hitting the end here. So as we typically kind of finish this up. Uh, we each kind of go around and do a takeaway of what's the big thing we learned. Uh, David, I know you have a, a tight timeline. How about you uh, go first? What was your takeaway today? My takeaway is that I'm more, this, this was a very good reminder of how third parties can really beat you up if you don't do it right, if you don't follow the tips that were just mentioned. Um, we as developers, like I said, we super trusting of the stuff that we're pulling down and we probably shouldn't be. Um, but if we follow some of the trips, tips that Charles gave us, I think, I think we'll be in much better shape. How about you? Um, I'm going to props to this third party IO one more time. I know I'm kind of gushing over it, but like, it is really amazing that it like boils all this down, um, from a third party. I think it's a really valuable tool. Um, and I think uh, a lot more people should be aware of it. Charlie, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, this is your chance. What, was, what would be your big kind of takeaway and anything else you'd like to plug uh, before we wrap it up? Yeah, yeah. In terms of plug, follow me on Twitter, at Vazak. Um, I started a blog where I have exactly one blog post. Yes. I think maybe like there's been four eyeballs on it totally, maybe five eyeballs. It's at vaz.ac, which... I don't know what part of the world AC is from, but <laughs> you bought a top level domain and you don't even know where it's from. I'm thinking like Canada, Newfoundland. I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know, but it works. Costs a couple extra dollars. Um, so I did it. So um, look for other stuff there. But I, you know, um, I think th third parties. Um, it's it's a very hot topic right now, and um, I don't want people to be afraid of them because Boomerang is a third party. You know, so we can't just say trust us, but not any of these guys. But there are some best practices that third parties all need to, I, I think, all need to follow. And I'm going to be more vocal about it on Twitter and on my blog about what those best practices should be. I love it. I love it. And TrackJS is a third party too. So if we're not following any of your best practices, you let me know before you shame me. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks so much, Charlie, for joining us. Um, we're going to take a break next week. Uh, I'm going to be on vacation, so we're not going to have a show. But we'll be back in two weeks with a new show. Uh, until then, I'm Todd Gardner. I'm David Walsh. Thanks so much for joining us. The Script and Style Show is recorded and produced by David Walsh and Todd Gardner. We'll see you next time on Script and Style.